to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Is it when you get on the helicopter, is it when you get to the hospital that it registers? It registers a month later when I wake up from my induced coma. I've got no idea. At the hospital, I'm saying, can someone please call Michael, my boyfriend? Yes, yes. And no one's answering me. But they weren't answering me because I'm busy trying... So keeping you alive. Keeping me alive. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Turia Pitt, if you don't know who she is, she is now a motivational speaker, she is a podcaster, she is a mother... She has done a TED Talk. She is fascinating. In 2011, Turiya was caught in a bushfire while running an ultramarathon. 65% of her body was burnt. I wanted to talk to her about that moment, that day, and the moments after. I've always just been completely fascinated by someone that has come that close to death and survived. This is Taria's story. Enjoy. Taria Pitt, I couldn't be more excited if I tried to have you on the deep. Your story is one of the weightiest, heaviest that we're ever going to share. And like it's, it's confronting you know, and this is your life and you have lived this life for a very long time and what you have done with your life after this horrific moment is extraordinary and is why you are the person you are today, you know. And for those that don't know Turia, like, I don't know who that would be, but I'll give you a brief rundown. You are present day a motivational speaker, a podcaster, you're a TV personality, you're a media personality, you are um, an advocate, you are, I would say, a philanthropist and you work closely with um, charities that are very close to your heart. You are a celebrity. But am I? (laughs) 
It's so weird, right? Because you just um, you finished up Celebrity Apprentice, which was my interview. I was like, Benji, I need her on the show. So you did that alongside my husband. Um, and you're, you're a mama and you're, you're also an engineer. I'm actually an engineer, yes. Yes. Do you practice that anymore? No, no not at all. And that, do you miss it? You know what? I kind of do. Like, part one of the reasons I did engineering was I loved the challenge of it, and I did mining engineering, which is super male dominated. I think yeah. like I graduated in class, there was like five five girls and like fifty boys, kind of thing. Um, but I guess that was part of what drew me to it because it was something that was hard and something that was challenging so I do miss some aspects of it right I miss like that challenge and the intellectual stimulation I got from it but I don't miss office politics stupid meetings yeah all of that stuff and I feel like being a mum now that would have been really hard to be a mum and be working at a remote manage remote mind site whereas like this sort of work I don't know if you feel the same Zoe um it's easier with oh, a family. Like, it's a privilege. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a privilege. You know, yeah. like, I, I put the baby to sleep and then I get to talk to you. It's a bloody privilege. But you mentioned something there which is, like, you chose an industry that was challenging and that takes me to my next point, which is I feel like you're a woman that loves a challenge. Like, who does ultra marathons? truly? Like, it's a very niche thing. How how long is an ultra marathon? An ultra marathon is technically like anything longer than a marathon. So an ultra marathon is a is very very long and very exhausting. And you did these for fun, right? I want to go back eleven years from now. How many ultra marathons had you done? None before. None. Oh, that was my first ultra marathon. Gotcha. Yeah. And so since being burnt, I've done ultramarathons. I've done, actually, I've done one ultramarathon. I've done Ironman triathlons, which are like the epitome of endurance events. And I've done mountain runs and stuff like that. It's just, it just blows up. But at the time, I hadn't done one yet. Hadn't, Hadn't done one. That was my first one. How far into the ultramarathon were you? We were 20, yeah, 25 Ks in. And I was running through a gorge and I could hear, so I knew that the next checkpoint was on the other side of the highway and I I heard what I thought was road trains, like really big trucks going down the highway. I didn't know that that was the sound of the impending fire. And because we were in a gorge, so there was me and five other runners. I don't know if you know what the Venturi effect is, but it's a fancy engineering ventilation term which is if you have a lot of hot air in a condensed space it almost has like a suction effect right so we were in like a current pulling it was pulling the fire through even faster than what it would have been going so we didn't really have an option. We could go, I could go back the way I'd come, but there was really high grass up to, um, like in between my waist and my shoulders. Um, so that wasn't really an appealing option. Or we could go up the side of the gorge, which had less vegetation, but fire travels faster going uphill. 
25 Ks, right? So the body is fatigued anyway. You are with five other people. You are faced with this situation. You're looking at all avenues and they're not looking good. When impending doom is coming, does the rational brain still kick in no, like that? No, it doesn't. Irrational. So you're just like, fight or flight, get me the fuck out. Exactly. Anyway. You just do whatever you think is going gonna, is gonna to keep you alive. Did you discuss it with who you were with or did you all just like disperse? Um. There was, I think there was a group consensus to run up the, run up the side of the gorge. And then it gets closer and closer and hotter and hotter. And you know, you're not going to be able to outrun the fire. Yeah. So I get burnt. Then what happens in the mind? So in my mind, while I was burning, I thought about my beautiful partner, Michael, and I thought about how, because I thought I wasn't going to live, so I just thought it's like, I felt like it was really unfair that we weren't going to be able to live this really great life together, you know, because we had goals, we had ambitions, we wanted to have kids, we wanted to do all of these cool adventures and, you know, like most couples when you're young, you have all of these plans and ideas for your life. So in that moment when I was burning, I thought it's really unfair that I'm not going to see Michael again. It's processing death. That is just... What does the body do when it's physically being burned? Do you go into a ball or... Um, I don't can't remember though because it would have only been a couple of seconds. Really? Yeah. I don't know though. I don't know though. But once a fire had passed over us, like it had moved through the gorge, I was still, I was still alive, right? Like I was still there. So I got this like almost this rush of adrenaline because I was still, because I didn't die. Right, so I was like, "Oh my gosh, I've I've lived," and then we, then we waited for four hours, for help to come. Yeah, but don't forget when you're in shock, you're you're you don't you got, yeah, your mind's not you're not looking at the time, being like, "Wow, we've been here for another twenty minutes." You're not, you're not thinking in such a rational, straightforward way. Time would be... Time is dilated, but also constricted. Yeah, yeah. it would be such a strange concept to be in at that time, right? Especially in the aftermath of what has just happened. Are, you, are the other people around you... Yeah, so there was another woman who got really badly burnt, and then the boys got burnt to, like, around 25% of their body, whereas Kate and I got burnt to 65% of our bodies um, and they were awesome they were like constructing like shelters out of there like oh. to protect us from the sun because we we're burning again from that hot Kimberley sun they were getting um, you know they were trying to give us water they were keeping us conscious by asking us questions talking to us which is really really good so they were amazing and then the helicopter pilot who came and rescued us um, he took Kate first so Kate was the other woman who got burnt and I actually remember being annoyed that she went first 
because I was like, well, hello. <laughs> I'm also. Yeah, or, or can we both fit? Yeah, like, that can was we both that fit on there. <laughs> yeah, because then the then the helicopter had to fly away, drop cat, and then I I had to wait longer again. Um, but the the thing about the helicopter pilot is like helicopters can't fly when it's dark, um, and I know a lot more about helicopters now because Michael, my husband, is now a helicopter pilot. But helicopters can't fly if it's dark. And helicopters aren't supposed to land on one skid. So the bottom of the helicopter, they've got these two skids. Both of those are supposed to be on the ground. Because we were on the side of the hill, he was balancing on one skid. So they're not supposed to do that either. But if the helicopter pilot, Paula Cripps, hadn't have rescued us, we would have been stuck there overnight and going for... 12 hours without medical treatment, I think we would have died. Like, I don't, I don't think, yeah, there's no way we would have lived. You know, in those situations, obviously, the helicopter doesn't know exactly where they're going to be landing. They don't know how it's going to be happening. They don't know how many people are burnt. No, he had they no idea. He had no idea. He, of what he was he, walking he, into, he was, you He know? was a commercial helicopter pilot, which is what my husband does now. He gets this call that... The, so he's not a medical... He's not a medical. He's not an ambo. No. He's just... He's a commercial... Oh, he's a commercial... So he... He gets this call that there's been this accident and a fire. And so he flies over and he sees... You know, there was probably eight or, um, you know, ten of us. I can't quite remember on the hill. Yeah. And then somehow yeah. he f- fucking balances on one skid. One skid gets Kate in. So, is like, I'll be back for you. No, he doesn't say those words. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't say, I'm not leaving without you. Like, I didn't hear any of that. What? But he got. So he just left and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. I was like, what's, where's... What happens now? Yeah, what happens now? Can I ask you, in this part, this is going to be a dumb question, but I have to ask, has the pain registered no, through nah, the adrenaline? No, nah, not really. At what point is it when you get on the um, uh, on the helicopter is it when you get to the hospital that it registers it registers a month later when i wake up from my induced coma i've got no idea at the hospital i'm saying can someone please call michael my boyfriend yes yes and there no one's answering me but they weren't answering me because i'm busy trying so keeping you alive keeping me alive organizing the next transfer which was to darwin hospital and that was when I was put in the coma. I just remember saying, can someone please call Michael? Call Michael. And then waking up a month later in Sydney. And then they put you in an induced coma. And at that point, there had been no pain. There'd been not a lot of acknowledgement for the, the whole scope until you wake up. Yes. And so when people say, when people say like, was it really painful, the fire? I'm like, well, yeah, of course it was, but... Your body has a really great coping mechanism in that you start releasing adrenaline and you go into this response of shock and so you're not really cognizant of all of that. But in hospital, waking up, then having to learn how to shut my lips, how to stand up, 
how to use my hands, how to feed myself. Like that process for me was far more excruciating. (sighs) The process is very long. It's arduous. How long is that? I mean, there's so many levels of process and progress, but... How long are you in hospital? I was probably total. I was probably in hospital initially for six, maybe six months. And that's like, I don't want to minimalize it into stages, but is that like phase one of the process? Initial stage after the injury. So you're in ICU, in critical care, um, and they're changing your bandages and things like that. But you're not really aware because you're on a lot of pain medication then you move upstairs to the burns unit your pain medication gets reduced naturally and so for me the the dressing changes obviously I hated them they were torturous these changes would go for hours and hours that would happen every single day and obviously I really hated them but I got super lucky in that I had some um really awesome nurses and like obviously I had brilliant surgeons and you know the whole it's I feel like it's really trendy in Australia to kind of bag out our medical system but I actually think it's pretty good man like you know the 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 nurses are angels yeah the nurses are literally yeah Angels from heaven. Yeah, like the amount of care and time and, you know, attention and all of those things that they showed me. Um, But I got really lucky because one of them sat me down. We watched a TED Talk together and it was by Dan Ariely. um, And he's a psychologist who was also burned. And he said with his dressing changes, he realised that um, if the nurses started with the most painful areas first... Um, that would make it easier for him to cope because there's a lot of research done about our experience of pain. But basically, it's that last moment of pain which influences how you feel about the whole experience. So if your last moment is super, super, super painful, you think, fuck, that was terrible, awful, awful, awful. Whereas if your first moment is super, super painful and you're like, fuck, you know, but then it gets easier and easier on reflection, your memory tells you, hey, it wasn't that bad after all. So I followed his advice. So I I volunteered to be the first Burns patient to get their bandages changed. It's kind of like that eat the frog concept, right? Like do the worst part of your day first, get it done. For me, that made me feel really empowered. What is the most painful part on the body? I know that would be different for everybody, but just in your experience. For me, the most painful area of my body to change was the places where they took grafts from. They were the most painful. So I volunteered, I ate the frog, whatever you want to call it. I did it first and then I asked them to start with the most painful areas of my body first. So that would normally be the sites where they had taken the grafts from or the donor sites. These graphs, if you had 
uh, non-burnt skin, would they have taken that from your yes. non-burnt yes. skin and put it there? Yes. But if you are fully burnt, then they would take that from somebody else's skin? Not necessarily. So our skin is our largest organ and obviously the main barrier to like bacteria and viruses and all sorts of infections. So if you have, well, like people who have a heart transplant, right, they have to take immunosuppressants to to stop their body rejecting that heart their body could reject that heart at any time so they might might have to have another heart transplant um, and so you can do the same with skin but the amount of immunosuppressants you'd need to take would be so much that you'd virtually have to live in a sealed bubble for the rest of your life so you had you had some unburnt places yeah. that they could grow. So I was burnt to sixty five percent of my body. So that meant thirty five percent of my body wasn't burnt. So they took that as donor sites. They put it on other areas of my body, and then six weeks later, that skin had grown back. So they harvested it again and put it on my body. But in the interim, yeah, in the interim, I was covered with cadaver skin. So that's why I'm really passionate about organ and tissue donation because so many Australians will say, yeah, 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 I'm an organ donor. It's on my driver's license. But in Australia, consent is not implied. So you need to have a discussion with your loved ones. Even if it's on your driver's license, your loved ones still make that ultimate decision for you. So it's really important if you want to be an organ donor or a tissue donor, it's actually really easy for people to donate tissue because it doesn't need to still be alive like in the case of a heart donation it's going yeah yeah. you pretty much have to like die and then it immediately goes to the other person but with a skin donation um it doesn't need to still be alive so let us go back to we were changing the bandages you're eating the frog you're starting to heal you're in the second floor now of the hospital medication is being reduced at which point because we we kind of skimmed over this did we get to talk to michael when do we talk to him so my my beautiful man um this always makes me cry but he was um he was amazing and he would come to hospital every morning at 7 a.m and he'd go home at night and he sat with you yeah. Every day. Every day. From the minute you were put there? Like the minute I woke up to when I fell asleep, he was there. And I, I think that says a lot about love because so often we think that love is these, um, like, you know, I got flown to Fiji for my anniversary or like, we went out to this like really fancy dinner and I think they are examples of love but I also think love is just showing up for someone that you love not doing you don't have to do anything crazy like Mike would often just read the paper (laughs) while I was getting my my dressings changed or whatever but I think he was really consistent and he was there for me I think that it is the epitome of love to turn up for someone in their lowest moments. Well, it's easy to love someone when things are good. That's that's easy. So easy. Like yeah, you your your relationship is also completely shifted, right? Well, yeah, he, we were boyfriend girlfriend, and all of a sudden he's like feeding me with a spoon. 
And he's looking at this woman that he fell in love with, that he's had this life with, that has gone through the most horrific experience, is unconscious. He doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't... The... It, and it's all irrelevant because it's you. And I just think that is love. It is, yeah. Like that. Yeah. What a beautiful boy. He's beautiful. But, like, I don't want to, you know. That's not, yeah. <laughs> no, but our, but I wanna... our relationship is very normal. Like, we bicker, uh, we argue about who's got the kids. No, of course. Yeah. There's, so I don't want, there's reality. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't think... want people to have this idea, like, it's, it's oh, my God, it's but a fairy tale. You? No, but I have spoken to people that have, you know, one guest in particular had a extreme brain injury, traumatic brain injury, was they were going to pull the life support off the whole thing. The boyfriend didn't turn up. Yeah, and I don't think people... When she woke from her yeah, coma... Yeah, he wasn't there. She said, she said, how many months has it been? And it had been months. Crickets. Yeah, I know. So I think, you know, we think oh, our loved one would be there. But the fact that Michael turned up means something. You know, some couldn't, some can't. Some people you love and other people, you might get along, you might have good sex, whatever it is, but you might actually not love them, you know? So I think if you love someone that it's obvious what you would do, like I'm sure you would do the same for Benji, um, yeah, yeah, like and, no, like no, yeah, no questions, a, um, no question. So I think that was probably why he showed up. But I also think um, I had a really good approach. Like I had a really, um, I guess, can-do attitude, and I was quite determined as well. Because I think it's, you know, you can give all of this love to someone and spend all of this energy on someone, but if they're not willing. To put in the work, it doesn't have to be recovering from burns, whatever it is. If they're not willing to to work, if they're not willing to try, if they're not willing to give things a crack, then it it can be really demoralising for you because you're like, I'm putting all of this energy and attention. and Yeah, I'm turning up I'm for trying, you. But you're not turning up for exactly. yourself. So Michael turned up for me and I showed up as well. And I think that was... And I'm, that's not to say that I didn't have down days and I didn't have days where I um, felt like everything was too hard and I, I railed against this catastrophe. I think those days are really important and a necessary part, particularly when you're overcoming trauma. Um, but I wasn't like that every day. Can I ask then about your mental state? Because your physical state has been altered. Yeah. Huge trauma, huge, I'm sure, um, the way the brain can mentalize things. Uh, how, who, like, are you, when, when you wake up, obviously you can't talk and swallow and things. How much is just you, always you, been you since your little girl, you? And is there a part that is like in a in a different heightened state? No. So obviously, I was, <laughs> I was, I was me. Um, so little girl Taria, whatever. 
uh, with me. Um, I think, and this is probably a very natural response to trauma, I wasn't thinking so much about uh, what had happened or what my life was going to look like or what I would be able to do or if I'd be able to have a family with Michael and if we'd be able to go on that holiday to such and such. I wasn't thinking thoughts like that. Yeah. You know, I was almost just trying to get through the day. The day. And when I did, when my mind did wander to those places, like what if... Um, I can't have a baby. What, yeah, what or... if What if this and what if that? I would just say to myself, like, you don't... You don't know, Turian. No one knows. The doctors don't know. You can figure all that stuff out later. Just focus on getting through the day. And there's this really good quote that I love, um, like, what's the best way to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And I think that was really true for me because I just, I tried, I tried not, I tried not to let myself go to that place of overwhelm or uncertainty in the beginning, when you're you w- woke up and you can't speak, and Michael's there, is it just a relief? No, I, I remember that, like, because I remember Michael looking down at me, and he's got like tears in his eyes, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, darling, aren't you like so happy you're still here with us? You're still here." And he was like, he was so excited, and like. He had like tears in his eyes and he looked really handsome and beautiful. But I remember my mind thought, no, I'm not. Because I was in so much pain. I was basically just lying down. I couldn't couldn't move my neck. I couldn't swallow. Um I couldn't like I couldn't communicate to the nurses that I was in a lot of pain, so could they increase my help. You know, yeah. I, I was powerless and helpless. So in that moment I wasn't like Yay, I'm alive. Thank God. I wasn't like that at all. Maybe now that I'm a mum, I'd be different. Is it the most uncomfortable, excruciating, trapped feeling? Yeah, particularly when you can't, if you can't communicate and you can't roll over, you can't ask for more pain medication and yet people are changing your bandages which they need to do like that is their job it's going to help you get better but it's not you don't have any control in that situation so you're just lying there where you know it feels like people are stripping stripping your skin off you it's almost like you had an experience of you know those there's many diseases where you're trapped inside your body, your mind is working. Yeah, I mean that was only that was only for probably maybe a couple of weeks because then the tracheotomy came out. I was able to communicate. Then I was able to ask to be, you know. And I think that process, I, the hardest part about not the hardest, lots of things were hard, but that feeling of being powerless or being helpless. Um, and as I was able to better advocate for myself and ask for what I wanted or what I needed, I found that process empowering because it put me back in the driver's seat. Like even even changing my bandages myself. So if you, I don't know, um, you know, if someone's like doing something to you and you're like, just I'll just do it. It's going to be it. It'll be easier for me. And if if you're concentrating on doing it again, that experience of pain 
seems less. So that was like another stage that I did. Like I would try to change as, as many of the dressings that I could myself. And that, that made my experience of the pain feel it, like even a bit better. What is your relationship with pain like now? Like, I honestly don't think it's helped me to be better with pain at all. Like, I think pain is pain. Wow. Well, pain is pain. Like, if you stub your toe, it just doesn't matter. It and as soon as you're it's better, not, and if something happens, it's not like it's not like I go, "Wow, I just stubbed my toe." You're the guru of pain, have, and you just I, like <laughs> I have learned to master it. No, I stubbed my toe. I am an enlightened pain being. Yeah, and I'll be like, okay. I'll be like, "Fuck, that hurt," you know. So it's. And I, and I think because of my experiences with hospital, like there are certain things I don't like. So one of the hard things with me is like finding a vein to put me to sleep. So what I ask for now is gas. Because that, like that process sometimes takes like an hour, which is like Oof. just, it's just, I find it just super. It, it's icky. Yeah, and, and, a yeah. Bit, and a bit traumatic because I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. stressed and I'm in this like heightened state. Yeah. When does the actual mental trauma arrive? There's there's you know, no like if, there's no clear date where I'm like, oh my god, there's not like a, oh my gosh, I finally understand what's thing, happened to me. Yeah, it's a bit by bit. It's a uh, oh, that's right, I was burnt that really large fire, but now I've got to have an operation, and then I've got to do my bandage changes, and then. Michael's here, and now I'm going to watch a movie, and now I'm tired. Now I've got to get do my physio session, now I've got to eat. So there's all of this stuff going on, and then it's like, oh, but wait, that fire where I was burnt. So it's not like there's this certain point. Like, is there nightmares? No, no, I got – I was pretty lucky because I know a lot of survivors of trauma um, have really troubled sleep, and they might have nightmares and stuff. So I'm pretty lucky. Like, I go to sleep. I stay asleep. I wake up in the morning. And sleep is so, so important for our mental health and yeah. our physical health. So I think the fact that I was able to get sleep, although in hospital I had a sleeping tablet, but whatever, doesn't matter. I was still you able know. to get a solid night's sleep and I'd wake up in the morning and Mike would be there and he'd bring me my coffee and we'd, and we'd start the day, right? Then I'd get my dressing changes. Yeah. Michael would read the paper. I'd do my physio sessions. We'd eat lunch. He might go buy me lunch from the hospital. I also feel really bad because my mum was there a lot of the time. I, I've failed to... Why do you feel bad? Well, I haven't mentioned her so far. I haven't mentioned her. It's been... Well, I was going to ask as well, about, so don't feel bad. It's been all about, like, it's, it's Michael, Michael. Michael. But yes, he was amazing. My mum was also there. So Michael... And from the beginning... My whole family was. So I think as well. And you're not a local to the hospital, so I just want to preface this as well. We we were from the south coast, so three hours south. So that was where I grew up. That was where all my family lived. But my mum was there. My brother was living in Sydney. My mum and my brother... Um, my mum and Michael lived with my brother. My dad would come up. I had two younger brothers who were like 14 and 15. They would come up. I'd, I'd have friends visit. So I had I had so many people around me who loved me. And so, like a love bubble. Yeah. And again, that makes it that makes it get like feel, start crying because I felt like I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am today and I wouldn't be the person that I am if I didn't have those people who loved me and supported me and they they loved me when I I really didn't have anything to offer. Like I was I was in a hospital bed 
incapacitated. And yet, Michael still loved me. My family still loved me. My friends still loved me. You know, so I had all these beautiful people that showed up for me. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned about my experience, it's that um, it's our relationships that really matter, especially when life comes down to the wire. And I know we all get caught up in this trap of being busy and doing the logistics things with our partner. And, and life is busy and it is challenging at times. But I think it's a good reminder to take a step back from all of that and remind ourselves, like, if you're healthy, if your family's healthy, if you've got people that love you, like, they're all that they're all wins, right? <laughs> like, you can't ask for much more than that. But I think we have to remember we've also lost in the busyness the um, importance of nourishing friendship because let's be honest, your mum and you know being a mum, it's that unconditional love. She's fucking there. Yeah. You'd be there. Your your dad's your brothers, right? But those friends and that love like and the Michael love, I think why we've discussed it so much is because it's not a given. No. No. Well, and to be honest, sometimes it's not a given from your family either. Like, so I, I felt I I got uncondi- – I've always had unconditional love from my parents. They've always shown me that. Yeah. Not all of us get that, unfortunately, which is really sad because it's, it's like – like I said, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I've done if I didn't have that, like, supportive and loving – base and that supportive and loving base allowed me to be the person I was as a child and as a teenager having that love and support and encouragement but it's also like you don't there's not it's not like you have to do anything outrageous to show someone that you're there for them that's what I yeah. mean like that's just why it's so take them, fucking beautiful. take them to the gym just go you with know? them for moral support take them to their physio session sit outside read the paper them, it's just cook, so meaningful. Cook them a meal, drop it over to them. Yeah, man. Like there's so many. It's not grand gestures. Yeah, it it's doesn't like have to the, be grand gestures. It's just like doing little things consistently. Like my grandmother, who's um, obviously an old woman who wasn't able, due to her circumstances, to be like driving down to Ulladulla and whizzing me around up the town. But she would like, she wrote me a letter every week for a year and she'd send me a box of chocolates with it like isn't that isn't that cute so but it actually like it makes me really emotional because makes me emotional i'm a mess right now there's lots of people that listen to this podcast that don't have family units yeah yeah um you know, it's something really shitty for me that when I have to do my um, next of kin, I just have Benji. Yeah. And um, I'm not doing a woe is me. What I want this to be for everyone listening is like the essence, the power that you have to turn up for others to be that. Yeah. Because it's a community thing, right? It's not just like, oh, when I'm down and out, like – 
I need people. It's like, yeah. no, like how are you turning up for people? Yes, and you can. Which is the which makes me emotional is you have these, and I know you turn up for people. Yeah, but the thing is I never, I had all of these amazing people in my life and before the fight I never stopped to acknowledge that. It was, it was because I'd had it my whole life, it was just an expectation that I had these beautiful, great, amazing, incredible, extraordinary people in my life. So I just, I didn't realize they were all of those things until I went through this and they showed up for me in the most profound way. And so now I do like, you know, try to show up for other people. And I think as well with showing up for other people, it has to be in whatever way or whatever capacity that, that you're comfortable with. So whether that's cooking a meal whether that's helping them with their um you know with their money or with their finances whether it's mowing their lawn um whatever it is again it doesn't have to be grandiose and I think we feel that a lot and I want to talk to you about this in a minute I mean we could talk for 17 hours but postpartum I think is a huge moment that women feel there this way you know which is do I have a community to rely on I feel isolated I feel alone they say it takes a village to raise a child and it's like where the fuck is my village it's my village we don't have a village who's my village how do I start how do I start a little village um but I think it is that time that we all are reflective on like fuck it's isolating you know I found that with Hakavai again so we used to live on the south coast. Mum used to live around the corner from us, but now we live up north for Michael's work. So we're not we're not near my mum anymore. But I was lucky that my mum lived around the corner. She was pretty helpful with Huckabye. This is first baby. This is my first this is baby. First she was pretty helpful with Huckabye. And then I knew in myself that if I just did something for me, whether that was like going for a walk with the baby, getting some sun, catching up with a girlfriend and walking with her baby as well, um, going for a little jog or a little walk solo, going for a swim at the beach. Yeah. Like if I did things like that, the days would seem less relentless. And I, I, I do think that's an unfair burden that you're placing on a new mum to like be proactive and like make sure you're getting some me time. Um, but I think... I also think like you can wait around waiting for your village to show up and waiting for them to come around and be there or you could just put yourself out there as hard as I know that is, especially when you've got a new baby, but texting a girlfriend say, hey, do you want to go for a walk this afternoon? Yeah. Yeah. Or even just getting some fresh air, getting some sun. You might find that you feel a little less shit than you did before I also think that postpartum depression is a real thing and I think if you do have postpartum depression or sorry post postnatal depression it's really important to speak to someone um, whether that's a psychologist whether that's a counsellor because I know there's some amazing support services out there for that I want to talk babies but I also want to talk like did did you speak to a therapist? I did. I, I had a psychologist and she was amazing. 
So I tried one in I tried one in hospital, and I think he was like a junior. <laughs> he was so shit. What the fuck? And I was like, you like first day? I yeah. don't know. It's like so. I was like, well, I'm not seeing him anymore. And then when we went to Aladala, I saw another psychologist, and I didn't like him either. So then I. Saw and that's really disheartening. I, I just want to acknowledge totally. there are people out there. It is so disheartening. Because you're seeking you, therapist. You, 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 you muster up all of this courage and all of this bravery to make the appointment and to take that first step. And if they turn out to. To spill your guts t- as well. Yeah, if they turn out to not be what you are looking for. And I know there's that saying, like, it's like a pair of shoes, you have to try on a couple to see if there's one that fit, fits. And I that that is true, but it is also very disheartening if you're unable to find. But we want to continue. We do. And because suggest that it really fucking helps if you find If you the find right a, the good right. one. So I tried. Well, I, the third one I tried was amazing. Great. She was great. How long, how long was she around? She, you know what, she was around for... Yes, like she's still around. Oh, yeah, cool. like she's. I asked my old hospital records, and they all got sent to me. And I clicked on the photos, and they're like photos of me, a couple of days after I was burnt, and I'd never seen them before. I wasn't expecting it, so I found it really confronting and really traumatic, and I couldn't sleep that night, and I was all stressed and worried, and I was like, I don't want to show this to Michael because I don't want to affect him I don't want to show these to mum because I don't want to upset her so it felt like this secret but I, and I didn't have anyone to chat to about it so so sorry I, how far how, how long ago this was, was this? like last year holy yeah, it was shit like last year so I texted her because I knew that she would be able to help but that was like a crisis point because like I couldn't I, I couldn't say I couldn't function I was just I keep saying that, like, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for that person. I believe that to be true about the surgeons, the nurses, the physiotherapist, my family, my friends, and my psychologist as well because uh, she was amazing. And it was also just helpful. Like, I think friends and family are great, but they're not trained professionals it's so true and it's so unfair as well to be like and you can't always be sitting your partner down and being like so i saw these photos of me after you know because can we navigate this together yeah because they're probably like yeah you don't want to upset them they don't want to be upset they might not know what to say how should they know what to say like michael's a helicopter pilot he's not a psychologist 
kind of okay with it. Um, and Michael and my mum would say, like, you know, you've got, like, a bald head, you're in hospital, you're sick, like, you're not really going to look like how you how you think. So, yeah, so it wasn't like a... Again, it wasn't like this crystal moment where I suddenly realised what I looked like. It was never like that. I was also... You know, Michael would tell me all the time how great I looked <laughs> in me really like cute gym outfits to wear. He'd say I looked amazing. So, and I think, you know, I've had boyfriends in the past who don't say those things and they might say, like, you look fat, you look shit, whatever it is. And them saying that to you makes you feel like, you do look fat and you do look shit. Yeah, whereas if you've got someone always telling you how amazing you look and how smart you are and how dedicated you are and all of that, then that has a flow-on effect to how we feel about ourselves. My psychologist was really good because I said to her, um, you know, when I'm getting my bandages changed, I shut my eyes because I don't like seeing my skin. And she said, okay, well, you've got to... <laughs> That's not really a realistic way to live. So she said, well, just start like doing smaller parts, like, you know, like wear a three-quarter length shirt. Um, wear, sh you know, you could wear like three-quarter length tights. But she also made it very clear that it was my prerogative. So she was like, you don't have to show your skin if you don't want to. But she said, like, you're someone that enjoys surfing, enjoys going to the beach, you're active. So she said, like, it is part of, and if you want to return to those sports, seeing your skin is part of that and part of that journey. Um, and even taking my mask off, I was really anxious about what people would think or what people would say. And she was great too. She was like, well, don't take this the wrong way, but people probably aren't thinking that much about it you know which is so true no one can they everyone is so self-obsessed yes. they only care about themselves exactly exactly but you know she said like again with your mask it's what you feel comfortable with so just start taking it off at home and maybe if you've got some friends around you could um not wear your mask and see how that goes so it wasn't and every time I had my mask off I got proof that there wasn't any judgments of me Right, like that no one really cared. It like reassures yeah. you. So I'm okay. So it wasn't there wasn't this moment where I unveiled myself to the entire world. I think that's important because um I saw I'm not sure if I think I saw you share this or maybe you did a TikTok with is a beautiful Steph that's a White Island survivor and Yeah, the day. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a bit of a different example you know, um, for this conversation, but she had kind of that kind yeah, of reveal to the yeah. world and that was her choice. Again, this is the thing with trauma. People, it, it manifests for people in different ways. So she wanted to do the unveiling. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. And that is a personal thing. Is it, you know how you said seeing those photos just the past year, so shocking. Was it because you're seeing yourself in such a detrimental position or is it so unrecognisable that you're just like, I can't? It was because I knew old Taria and I know new Taria 
and I'm fine with both. But it was because I saw this amalgamation of new Terea and old Terea at the same time. Wow. So that, that was really fucking, that was confronting for me because I've made peace with both and I'm happy with both, both. and I love both. But just seeing them both at the same time was, like I said, really confronting. You are extraordinary and you, you probably think, well, it's just me going through this experience. Like what what else would I have done? Yeah. I'm just doing what, you know, I would do or so-and-so would do. But to, I mean, put yourself in the public eye and mentor and motivate and whew, it's a lot like uh, it's a lot of energy yeah but it's also my work and it's a yeah it's a, again I feel like it's a, a privilege like I get to write books and yeah, tell stories yeah. about yeah. my experiences I get to teach mums how to run I get to have really interesting conversations with people on my podcast i get to work with really great brands and be an example of diversity on our screens and in our social media feeds so i think all of that um i actually feel it's a a a position of privilege because i also could be in the case that no one gives a fuck about what's happened to me no one cares i lose my job as an engineer michael breaks up with me and i'm living my life being depressed watching daytime TV. Has this changed the way you mother? I think so, Zoe, because I'm more cognizant that you can't control everything in life and sometimes Oof. sometimes shit just sometimes yeah. shit just happens in no one's at fault but a bad thing happens and so I know that that, that could happen to my boys as well. And so what I do is I don't, I don't, if I spent all of my time obsessing over that, again, I'd be a mess. So I'm just like, well, if I can't control it, it's not much point worrying about it or ruminating about it. Try and be a great mum and enjoy, and enjoy, enjoy them. Yeah. Because how old are they? Are they two? Yeah, two and four. Woofie, that's a lot. Well, how old are yours? Boys! 16 months and three and a half, so we're very close. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's a fucking privilege and it is a joy. Like having healthy, oh. healthy babies who are reaching their milestones, you know, like having your health, having a job which you enjoy. Yeah. Having a partner who likes his job. And as someone who has gone through trauma, um, it's there's an element of self-preservation there, which and this is this is to anyone who's listening who's gone through trauma as well. Like you are allowed to talk about it, but you are also allowed not to talk about it if you don't feel like you want to, or you don't feel comfortable in that space. You're allowed to cry and be upset, but you are also allowed to have fun and laugh and enjoy what you're doing um you know it it's it's my trauma and I can do whatever the fuck I want to do with it you know what I mean so if so so no one can say to me oh you talk about it too much I do what I want if you don't want to hear about it don't don't tune in 
you know. So I think I think it's I've come to that realization with a bit of um, maybe a bit of wisdom and a bit bit more age. Fuck yeah, you have. Yeah, and you'd be the same, Zoe. Like you're allowed to talk about what you want to talk about. If you don't want to talk about it. You don't talk about it. Can I ask you this? Because there is a sense for the worst times in my life. There is a sense of gratitude, right? Of not that they like, not the in the midst of the trauma, but the learnings, you know, and the shaping of my life. Like you and I both know if those things didn't happen, we would not be here having this conversation. Yeah, exactly. With each other, right? Like it's the the wisdom and the grit and the resilience and the darkness and the shadow and you being close to death and all of the grit that you carry with you is is the is the the depth and the fascination yeah. and the, the overcoming like is the good bit you know and so many good bits but like yeah no i get it but i also think that there are bad bits and dark bits and horrible bits but there's also examples of like you've said of grit and determination of people showing up for you and for you surviving the worst possible thing that you didn't know that you had it in you but yet you did and now you're living this really amazing life with your spunky husband and your two beautiful <laughs> children and, you, and you're living a great life and you can choose to focus and, and zero in on those awful parts that did happen they are a part of your history but for me for the most part I choose to focus on the good people showing up for me the brilliance of my surgeons and the compassionate nurses and all of the things people have done for me over the years just because they wanted to and now what I can do for others that's where my focus is you know how we were saying at the start we could have thought of all of the things. Will I run again? Yeah. Will I go back to work eat again? Will I work? Will I have a baby? Yeah. Each and every time one of those things were met, was that a graduation to that point, or was that a holy fuck, baby, baby? Like we got there. I didn't think this was gonna, or I didn't know if this was gonna be a thing. I think. Like when I was in hospital, lying in that bed, stripped of all my abilities, unable to wipe my own ass, I didn't really feel like Tere because Tere was this smart, adventurous, ambitious, go get a chick and I didn't really feel like that at all. But I think the more I reclaimed my physicality, so that was why doing an Ironman was really important to me because that was like the epitome of endurance events. I felt more like, more like Taria. And so I think meeting all of those milestones and having a life which looks very different to what it did before, but that's okay because I loved my life before, but I love my life now. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I, I did it. Like everyone said I couldn't do it. It was more yeah. like, well, this is part of my life. There has been constant hurdles, constant challenges. There's too many probably to name. Yes. Right. It is. I concur. Like you just said, the 10 years of healing, I would say it's 11 because we're, we're going 
to the current moment but it's a forever thing right you're still looking at operations yeah still because I remember seeing my psychologist and I said to her when will I get over this and she was like um never (laughs) um so May 2037 like no no but I've come to realize that we don't get to a point where we're like oh my gosh I feel I've just forgotten about that thing that happened. I feel great. I think it's when I understood that and I accepted it and I acknowledged it. I think acknowledging how we feel is really important as well. Um, And it's just part of what makes me who I am. And so I think with whatever experience you have in your life, whether that's getting cancer, breaking up with an ex-boyfriend, I think it's something that you just carry with you but I think that's okay too because I think that's part of what what it means to be human Mm. I mean I don't have to say you're fucking amazing but I will yeah thank you Zoe our last question for everybody that's on the deep is the same who are you when no one is watching this is such a weird question um, so like if a tree falls, God, it's your interpretation, of course, no one hears it. Honestly, I feel like if people are watching or if people aren't watching, I'm the same person, which is yeah. actually a really good thing to have that your inner yeah. person and the person that you portray to the world are the same. Because that means that you're, and I hate this word, that means you're authentic and that you're doing things because you want to do them and you're spending time with people because they make you feel good and you're working on the things that you want. Yeah. Oh, you're so good. All right. So bloody good. Adore you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, darling. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi everybody, it is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.